Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate fantasy theme weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, so Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of the 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. There are only 11 new episodes left before Star Trek Voyager's series finale. They came in search of a savior. She's the unborn child of Belana Torres. But started a holy war. I'll see you on the field. An all-new Voyager. Welcome to the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. My name is Peter Holmstrom. I'm a screenwriter and author of The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, out in stores right now. And I'm Lisa Clank. I was a writer on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and I have a short story out in the current issue of Star Trek Explorer magazine. And I also have a, a story out in the digital issue of Star Trek Explorer magazine. Lisa's is a lot better. It's in print, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, okay, back to, the, back to the intro here. Um, all right. Film and TV have a hard time capturing the human experience for the simple reason that most of the human experience is unpleasant to look at. There is an almost evolutionary imperative to believe those around us are as we are. 
It allows us to feel safe, comfortable, and part of the community. Even though all of us, all you have to do is turn a corner in a big city or go knock on your neighbor's door to find yourself a stranger in a strange land. Marvel heroes all have the same witty banter, and serial killers on NCIS all are variations of the same. These days, it seems almost uh, left up to the yearly Netflix documentary to remind us of the strangeness that exists right outside our door. Sci-fi and horror seem thankfully exempt to this tradition, as it's baked into the genre that emphasizing the extraordinary misfits of the world is part of the game. Which is why, hopefully, horror and sci-fi fans are some of the most accepting and kind-hearted people you'll ever meet. I say all this because today we're discussing Season 7 of Star Trek Voyager, an episode called Prophecy, where Voyager comes across an aged Klingon ship whose inhabitants have spent generations in search of the promised land. And I was reminded of how many people in our current world still trade life and liberty in search of such things, even if it's rarely mentioned in our daily newsfeed. Joining us here today on the show is the man, the myth, the legend, possibly the most <laughs> well-versed Trek scholar I know, and and also the man who has a story credit on today's episode, uh, Larry Nemechek. Thanks for being here. Uh, well, well, thanks, guys. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Lisa. Good to see you all again. Uh, yeah. I, I, I just want to say, though, don't build that up too much. I, if I don't know the answer to something more than likely, I know who to ask, I know where to look it up, or I know where the body was buried and it's pointless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've had a long history with Star Trek. How did you first get hooked up with, with the Trek universe? Uh, well, uh, as a fan, I always blame my ninth grade science teacher who was ashamed, uh, was shocked, I mean, <laughs> that I should be ashamed that I didn't know Trek. And she sent me home um, after school to go watch it after school when I could. So, But I had a lot of interests, and uh, including history, including the fact that I was a big NASA kid, NASA freak during the moon landings and, and shuttles and all. So um, I came to Star Trek not through sci-fi, although I read some sci-fi, but it wasn't like the burning passion. I came to it more out of my history bug and uh, just you know, general nerdishness that was everything from stamp collecting to model rocketry to building models and, and all, stamp collecting and all of that. Um, but it, I just loved the universe of it. And I took all the positives for granted, which now I, I, and at the time I wondered why it was interesting that some people felt compelled to write stories where I just wanted to flesh out the universe and find out how it was made and and time went on and I found that I was the minority. <laughs> but anyway, it's all good. It's all good, you know, now. And that's kind of what wound me uh, that uh, down the path. That and going into journalism and uh, mm -hmm. theater and having that mix and then coming to L.A. with the, with the book I got to do uh, kind of led me where I am. What was that first book? The Next Generation. Uh, what well, was it? It was the first professional. The Next Generation Companion. Okay. Uh, the the blue and then the red and then the black, but it sold <laughs> it sold here. The Mike and Rick's Michael Kuda and Rick Sternbach's technical manual had been the first uh, next generation era nonfiction book to go out there, and it took four years to get that sold because they were very nervous about whether this whole next generation thing was really going to stick. And right. and I you know and the print world is notoriously conservative, or at least they used to be, <laughs> especially when you're talking about big you know, uh, full-size 8.5 by 11 size books, not little paperbacks, um, and artwork and all that involved in it. But I had self-published my own. I, I love B. Joe's Con Concordance, the original encyclopedia for Star Trek, and I love the technical manual and the blueprints and, and uh, the medical reference and all of that, and um, had been working that, that into... Th that was my passion, 
to jump in and try to organize and fill the gaps and, and do all that. And um, people inside, Richard Arnold and others at Paramount, saw my yearly encyclopedia that I was self-publishing when laser printers came out and you could put something out. Desktop publishing was what it was called. And the early Macs. And I did that in a database and printed it out. And the writers were using it on staff in the beginning. Because there was, you know, you know, kids, there was no <laughs> memory alpha. There was no Okuda encyclopedia. There was nothing aside from... <laughs> the assistants pulling scripts out of drawers. So anyway, it was a big relief to them and they pushed for me to do it, except by that time, Mike and Denise were going to do the encyclopedia and they said, how about a making of book? And I flashed to the making of Star Trek, which was great, which was awesome, but it was a totally different thing. And they wanted it done in three months. And of course I said, sure, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it, was, it, was, it wound up being six months because of a photo issue that Leonard Nimoy had uh, with licensing because of something else, the the pebbles, the fruity pebbles uh, commercial that had Fred and Barney wearing Vulcan ears, and he was mad that uh, Paramount hadn't fought that. Uh. So for six months <laughs> he wouldn't. I know. So for six months he wouldn't approve his images for what was the biggest event of the first five years of Next Generation? Spock, Spock on unification, the two parter. That was the big thing, and we had no pictures of him to put in it because he wouldn't approve his likeness. So I got three extra months. <laughs> thankfully, to write to, to write more. But I was doing it from Oklahoma before we moved to L.A. And Anyway, it was an insane time, but it's kind of the thing you do when you first get an opportunity and you, you know, you jump. Yeah. And then we, you know, updated the book and then moved to L.A. and, and uh, did a whole bunch of other stuff. So this would have been, what, 91, 92, somewhere around yeah, there? 92, yeah, 92, 92, yeah. I ask only because I know your, your story with Voyager, which I think we're going to, We'll we'll start talking here in a second though, but that, that starts very soon then after, doesn't it? It's like you you're just kind of on on kind of a, riding a, a wave here, aren't you? It's just uh, well, it was uh, you know a no internet, and yeah. you kind of had your own devices. And one thing I had been recording VHS tapes of the shows, but I like paused. I'm meticulous. I'm not that OCD, but I was pausing. <laughs> Uh, commercials, and I would even like back up and not even have the bumper. It would be end of film wow. and end of in the beginning of film. So I had and I had them on uh, fast speed. So I had like two episodes of tape where I could read the acutograms before anybody knew what an acutogram was. I was like looking the in jokes on the graphics <laughs> and and putting that into my my little self published uh, annual encyclopedias. Yeah, yeah. but I, so I had all the trivia side to draw on. I just didn't get the chance to, you know, inter I. My mind was the making of Star Trek by Stephen Whitfield, and he's talking to every, you know, Gene on down, everybody. And I'm thinking, how am I going to interview people in three months and do all that? That's insane. And and the last thing I couldn't be was that jokey, crappy book that fans go, oh, they just threw that at us to get us to plunk down right. fifteen or twenty bucks, you know, and it's worthless. <laughs> and I, that's the last thing I wanted because I remember how I griped about those kind of books. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I knew what I, you know, I wanted to be around in 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 uh, 20 years, not in, you know, be a joke in two months. So that was that, but that was, you know, you're hopefully you rise to the occasion. And um, so I did the first one and then we moved by 94. I came out on two different trips as I worked on the succeeding seasons. And then by the time they had the plan that next gen would end at seven seasons, do a movie, start a new show, which would be Voyager while DS9 was going. That's about when we moved. And then by a completely different quirk of fate, uh, Janet had come with me and gotten to be known to Lolita Fajo and some of them in the writing staff. And um, whole whole domino of effect of things, but basically there was a temp, a temp job she had for about 10, 12 months to be the assistant script coordinator. 
And so she had a temp job for 12 weeks, which went permanent. And in the middle of all that, and then all the staff, some of the staff coming over from Next Gen 2 Voyager, we were invited in to pitch stories. And uh, that's why, that's where Prophecy came from. Although it was, it felt like it was, uh, you know, primordial compared to what happened later on. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, but we were uh, there at the beginning of Voyager and went in and we basically got a chance to pitch in December of 93 when they were shooting, they were about six or seven episodes into shooting. So it was the Bible and then things had started to evolve past the, you know, the startup point. Yeah. Which is really interesting. And, and uh, we'll, just, well, well, I guess we'll just start the episode here and we can talk more about it <laughs> as we, uh, as we get right on to this. But uh Listeners out there, we are watching Season 7, Episode 13 of Star Trek Voyager, uh, Prophecy. We're going to get Lucky started 13. here in uh, 3, 2, 1, Engage. All right. So we're opening up here on a uh, attack here. It's a nice, nice little... Uh, Nice little battle sequence. Yes. Uh, so, Larry, so Larry, you were just... What, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, at least sorry. <laughs> uh, Larry, what do you remember about the uh, original pitch of this episode? So the orig- the whole thing was, the pitch was like the weakest. It was our afterthought out of four or five pitches. <laughs> we spent all <laughs> this time on everything way. else. <laughs> and then at the end, I said, well, we should have one more. Okay, look, they've got a Klingon. Ha, let's have them meet some Klingons in Delta Quadrant and make up this whole backstory about it's a generational ship. <laughs> okay, and it can be a Balanda show. And she can hate her Klingon side, and then she's the pivot point, and she can fall for a Klingon who's the engineer. Let's the, At first, they fight each other because the Klingons don't believe it. And finally, Voyager has to slap them down. We've been allies for 100 years or whatever, and they don't believe it. And they still don't believe it, but they go along with the Rus' All with the eye to take, you know, we, who cares that they're 100 years past us? We're still Klingons and we're still more clever and they're still lowly Federation. So that was the gist of it. But Velana was the central figure. But that was, they were all baby characters then. She wasn't hooked up with Tom. She wasn't pregnant the way she is in the seventh season, the final year. So the, she was the pivot character. And it was all about, as Janet would say, and we, we pitched and, and did it together. But she's uh, talking about how at the end she has to either kill... It was either Chakotay or uh, Paris. We weren't sure, but we were leaning toward Chakotay then. She either has to kill one of her old Maquis crewmates on Voyager, or she has to kill her new Klingon engineer lover, who she's still self-loathing. And that was the crux of it. Uh, but we also were going to throw it out there so that if they wanted to say, well, if this was a generational ship this far out, then as we go back toward Earth, we'll, we may come across other instances of Klingon you know, maybe there's a subjugated planet or maybe there's some other thing we come across that they've they've dropped in the, you know, hundred years since they set out. So that was like, hey guys, here's the thing we're gonna give you. You can you can play with this for later on. So was the idea here picking up I, I guess you could point to like a private little war or something like this idea that like the Klingons just it's all about expansion, right? So like was mm-hmm. this tied to religion in your initial pitch, or was it more of just like the Klingons just go out and they they're they're looking to conquer, they're looking for new yeah. opportunities. Yeah. The whole thing was this is Kirk era Klingons pre, uh, you know, pre-alliance, so pre-Kittimer Klingons. Mm. And the sad thing that we just saw that teaser is even, you know, it, we, we pitched the show, basically we pitched the show, it kept getting kicked down the road for one or two reasons, I'll tell you. But because we're right here, that teaser opened up with, not with the Voyager scene, there was a parallel scene where it opens on, it's a completely deleted scene which sets you up for the story and as it, and they did it for time. 
because they the whole rest of the episode as it comes, they're scrambling to get the exposition to you. Mm-hmm. Because in the opening scene, they're having a funeral for the Klingon captain that just died of the Kuvamak. But yeah, mm-hmm. no disease, no religion in our pitch. It okay. was just straight on. But the opening scene was, and you see the first officer now being captain and being a little wobbly, and you see the second officer being his first officer that's like biting at his heels. And you see, you understand what just happened. They both just came to it. Mm-hmm. But they spent all this money on Klingons and extras, and they redid the bridge, and it was just sad that they cut the scene. They'd spent money on it. So Oh, so they filmed it, though, even. Yeah, that's, oh, that's, that's really filmed. And it wow. ends with, yeah, and there's slides of it, but it ends with, um, they're in the middle of the funeral, and they do a Klingon yell to Stovacor and the whole thing. And then in the middle of it, the helmsman says, sir, we're picking up a, a Starfleet signature. And he says, that's impossible. And then it hard cuts to Paris going, Captain, we're picking up a Klingon signature. That's impossible. <laughs> right. And that was the that was the setup. And instead, they cut the whole Klingon opening and went right to, wow. you know. And you don't hear about that. You don't get any hint about the disease until halfway through. And it kind of comes out of nowhere. But we can. Right. So that's, that's kind of like right off the bat. It's it's wacky. It is interesting. I was I was going to mention in, in a little later, but like we see a lot of Klingons in this episode. Like I think mm-hmm. possibly even the most Klingons we've seen in a shot. You know, coming up. I mean, it's a uh, it's a lot. You know, and and as you talk about it, it's uh, uh, maybe would have been uh, part of a of a larger story. Yeah. Well, I just I just know that they rigged. A br- I'm trying to remember if they even. Go- I don't think they even go back to the Klingon bridge. It was supposed to yeah. be a. It was supposed to be a D seven, and they had to make it a bird of prey. There were a lot of little. They kept trying to get, the effects and art department kept trying to get an actual D seven original series through Voyager and DS nine and Enterprise. They kept trying to get an actual old, you know, TOS battle cruiser on screen, and it kept not working out for one reason or another. But, and in your initial pitch, did you even say this was going to be like the? The ridgeless uh, uh, forehead. Well, it was supposed to be a hundred years. I mean, exactly, it could have yeah. been a, <laughs> yeah, Katinga. It could have been motion picture era, yeah. but we were hoping out. You know, we were saying it would be cool to, it would be cool to do that. Yeah. So yeah, so the whole. So I have to say this: our it was very nice of them to keep our names in the story. They didn't have to do that. But when when I went in to say hi to everybody at the beginning of sixth season or seventh season, Ken Biller stopped me and said. Do you still have your notes from this? Because we sold the pitch. It didn't get made. It didn't get made for one re- good reason or another. But after three or four years, we said, this is never, we got paid for the story, but this is never going to get made now. Sure. Because, right. you know, Bellana's, uh, Bellana's hitched now <laughs> to Tom. Mm-hmm. And it's not an open, you know, she wouldn't do that now. So it was like, well, that's nice. We sold a story, yay. And then at the beginning of seventh season, Ken said, do you still have your notes? We were looking in the archives for your notes. And I said, you mean they're not next to the Ark of the Covenant? (laughs) (laughs) My image of the Paramount Archives. But um, but I I said, oh yeah, we've got, of course we've got them. Oh, look, it's a story. I have the notes from the things we didn't sell. (laughs) So I went home to Janet. I'm like, okay, don't get excited. But they asked me about our notes (laughs) from our story. And she's like, what would they do with it now? And like, well, you know, people are creative. (laughs) So the gist of it was Klingons in the Delta Quadrant and an initial confrontation where they don't believe it, that there's been an alliance. Right. uh, And that that Balan is the pivotal figure. And after that, it's, you know, we had a hunch that she would either, I think in Cathexis, she has a thing where she dreams, where she's under and she dreams about uh, Chakotay and you're kind of going, Hmm. Yep. Is yeah. that a latent attract, you know? But then it winds up being it was either gonna be him or or, or Tom Paris. Yeah. 
So uh, aside from that, though, this is a completely new... So, you know, I was thrilled that we were thrilled that they did it. We had a view party to watch. And it's a pretty... It's it's actually a good... And the B story with Neelix and the Klingon warrior S is funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. But I, I can tell that even in the story that they made, it suffers, I think, from cutting out that first scene because it... I don't know about you guys, but it feels... We come up to it here in a, in a bit. They're still uh, they're still chomping over here about who's going to take who, and right. um, and even what to do. Even if we can uh, blast them, what are we going to do with two hundred and four Klingons? <laughs> <laughs> but that that opening scene, all the way through this, you wonder why is the Klingon captain so you know nervous, and why is he so unsteady, and why is yeah. he such a you know milk toast? It's because he just he just got the job. Gotcha. That makes gotcha. sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think in the episode itself, you're you're kind of. I don't know, meant to read into it that he's just kind of tired at this point. Like, it was like <laughs> mm-hmm. we've been on the road for so long. Like, he's just, he's looking go. for There's a hotel at the end of the night, sort of thing. But, <laughs> yeah. but I, uh, I think you had a CG help there. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we did. <laughs> absolutely. That wasn't really 200 or whatever that even looked like, 100 Klingons there in that, oh. in the cargo bay or the shuttle bay. Lisa, I mean, I'm I'm really interested by this because it's like, it sounds like the story had just been bounced along from season to season. Were, were there many? Uh, notions like that in, in the Voyager writers' room, where it was just like, "Oh yeah, there's this episode. Like, maybe maybe we'll find a place for it this season. Maybe we'll tell hold on." Lisa, tell him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, anytime we would buy, you know, a story from a pitch, you know, it wouldn't necessarily go into development immediately. You know, mm. there were there were some things that we thought, well, you know, maybe this isn't, you know, right for right now, and we should hold it for a little bit for later. And often we would hold it, you know, like maybe if there hadn't been many Bolana stories for a while and we had a Bolana story, then it would go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, I don't know why this got kicked down the road, um, but I think that the better we got to know Bolana, the more powerful the episode would be. Oh, I, I can tell you exactly why it kept getting kicked down the road. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because we sold it. And, and you know, there's a... There's a um, well, we sold it, and immediately they had already bought faces where she is literally mm-hmm. figuratively split in half, human split and Klingon. Two, yeah. Terrifying. So they said, well, we just did that, so let's hold off. And, okay, fine. And, well, there are two or three things at work here. Um, and Michael was the one that said, let's buy it. Or Jerry said, we pitched it, actually physically pitched it to Jerry. And okay. so she summarized it, and I still, I still have her fax memo. And the way she summarized it already looked like, you know, her skew was in it. <laughs> there were a couple of things I went, well, okay, fine, whatever. You guys bought it. We'll do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And I knowing that as first-time writers, we probably, there's a good chance we would not wind up getting to actually do the script ourselves. Right. But maybe at least get to do a draft or a pass at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but almost as soon they said, we've got this Balana split in two, and it, it's Balana, her human and Klingon side, you know, resolving that, which was part of our pitch. Right. So... Um, they said, let's hold it till second season. Well, by second season, they said, you know what? We're supposed to be in the Delta Quadrant. We've already had Ferengis and a Romulan, and we've had a Klingon episode, and this would be... It's like, we're starting to not feel like we're way, way off. So right. let's hold off, and let's not be here in the Alpha Quadrant rush. Mm-hmm. So then by the third season, they held it back. Then it was, oh, look what's happening on DS9. Worf and the Klingons are at DS9. Oh, it's going to look like we're, we're, we're you know joyriding with them we're piling on <laughs> so that was the after that so now we're up to like four years in and she's really developed past where we had her in our specific story sure mm-hmm. 
and that's when Janet and I were just now along the way. Michael went off to do his. Um, he had gone off to do his series Legend, mm-hmm. which is how Janet got the job in the first place. It opened up, and then he came back. And when he when we pitched in the beginning, he wasn't actively on the staff. And we wanted, and we pitched a bottle show. We were like, "Look, just drag the Klingon sets out of storage, and you've got <laughs> you've got the show, right?" Yeah. And then when when Michael came back, and we had a the only time we had a story meeting, it was just Jerry and Michael and rookie Ken Biller, who was in his first year. Brandon was busy, yeah. And I don't think the staff was any bigger than that. But, but what when year we was came that? back, huh? What year was that? This was well. It was like it was January the first season. The first shows had aired. They hadn't yeah. added two or three more slots to the staff. Yeah. So yeah, and Brandon wasn't there, so it was just the three of them. And so Michael came back. I think he was feeling his oats, and I think his mindset was where basics wound up being eventually. Mm. But in this story session, he says, "You know what? Why don't we open this show up? Why don't we make it a big epic? Why don't we make it a two-parter? Why don't instead of having the Klingons on a ship, why don't we have them?" Um, have subjugated a planet already, and there's a native race, and we can, there's a native species, and and we can come across them first, and we can give them a language, we can make them a language, and have subtitles. And <laughs> he was like, going to blow all this money on having it be on location, and have a village, and have natives and a different makeup, and you know, and the Klingon, we're seeing old school Klingons having you know brutally taken over a world, uh, you know, less developed world, and we're just going, uh, uh, okay, okay, and they wanted to flash your opening, and we came up with this whole thing of. Balan and Chakotay are in a shuttle and they're scouting and they get readings on this planet and they go in to look at it and there's something in the planet that throws their propulsion off and they go in to crash. But the thing about this, where they are is it's arboreal and there's an upper, like a jungle tree level that is so dense when they crash, their shuttle like literally comes to rest 200 feet in the air in these thick trees. <sighs> and and we had the whole thing where the shuttle's upside down and they open the huh. door and they start to get out of the thing and they look down and you're looking 200 feet down to the ground. Which like, well, that's never been done before. That'll be cool. True. And then the whole thing about what happens and that we had, you know, we had several char- Klingon characters and some native characters and all this. And so we went away and worked on that because Michael said to, and I remember the story meeting and, and Ken goes, and you could have something like the Japanese soldier that didn't know the war was over for 20 years. And I remember thinking, what does that have to do with anything? But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so we went home and worked on this and worked on it, worked on it and brought it back. And by that time, Michael had gone away for good as a consultant and we put it on Jerry's pile and a few months go by, and the world, you know, and the, th- the whole thing of kicking it down the road for the two or three other reasons. And finally, after about three years, Janet went in and said, Okay, so should we just um, like uh, accept the fact this isn't going anywhere and just give up on it? Mm. And Jerry said, Why don't you go back to your original pitch, <laughs> like simplify it, yeah. and, and refine your original pitch? Because that's what she had bought and really was sold by in the beginning. And Michael kind of blew it up, but Michael wasn't there anymore. Right. So, well, all of which, right, as someone who was in the room for years and years, Lisa, you know this is how things ebb and flow and people come and go and all that. Yeah. So that was the thing. So we went back and worked on it, and then it was like, well, now they're 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 hooking up and they're getting married, and you know the whole the original story. So we had just written it off. It was a great experience. Yay! We got a few hundred, you know, a few thousand dollars for it. Yay! Right. Um, we can tell our friends. Ha ha. <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of like the book that I worked on that never happened. Uh, until it kind of did. So that's why when Ken said, do you have your notes? That's why I went, oh my God, oh my God, back from the dead. Yeah. And and But I knew they would have to do what they wound up doing with it, which was invent this whole story, which I actually thought was 
was really good for Tom and Bellana. It was mm-hmm. really good for the whole notion of at this point, how do you bring Klingons in? The fact that they had a, you know, a Messiah figure, baby <laughs> myth, mm-hmm. and uh, this this sect. Um, yeah, yeah. So here's some of the Klingons that they, um, you know, that they had paid for, but now they're all in the cargo bay instead of on their bridge, having the funeral right. for the dead captain. Right. So they got a little mileage out of these guys for having made them all up. Yeah. Yeah, no, if you, if you have Klingons in a show, you definitely want to see them. Well, see them, I and once you've made them up, you want to get your, you're gonna, you want to get your money it's worth out of yeah. them on camera, yeah. My father was human. It's a lot of time. I do like the conflict here of, like, you know, the, the mm-hmm. Balan has always been, uh, uh, you know, uh, her mom, I think it was her mom was a uh, Klingon, her dad was yeah. a was a human and uh right. and Klingons sort of uh you know pure blood type of uh, ideology type thing it comes into play here so I, which I uh cool well, you eventually get to see you see your mother on barge of the dead and you see her father actually still alive on earth mm-hmm. what Juan Torres or something who's hispanic yeah. right more human but this thing about her human and Klingon sides still not settled, you know, which mm-hmm. is something they kept playing with all. The, it's it's like Worf only differently, or like Spock only, you know, differently. And um, the episode about whether or not they they uh, genetically enhanced their daughter or not enhanced, yeah. but just tapped down her tamped down her Klingon side was really was really powerful too. I thought. Yeah, that was a good one. But this thing of having her angst, <laughs> her self-loathing of one side or the other, getting caught in the middle. Yeah. So, Larry, I mean, you pitched before the show actually started. Were you ever uh, uh, invited to come back and pitch some more? Or did you have any desire to pitch more episodes? Or were you pretty firmly on the, the nonfiction writing side of things? After? Uh, no, we did. We did once or twice. We'd go off and work on some stories. And I know, and we did it for DS9, too. Mm-hmm. And I... <laughs> We had a couple of sessions, once with Renee and once with Ron. Um, and uh, one, I totally thought I had sold one because I, I had wondered for years of DS9, well, here's Rom and here's Nog, but where's where's Rom's... I always thought X. Like, what happened to... If, if fringy women have no rights, what happened to Nog's ex and... Uh, uh, Rom's ex and Nog's mother? Mm-hmm. And by that time, I had, I had always... I'd interviewed you writers... And talked to producers and writers and read stories about the pitch and, you know, being nervous and working, you know, all that stuff. And then to go in and do it your first time was nervy, even though it was somebody friendly like Jerry, uh, yeah. you know, Janet's boss. But it was still nervy and you still wanted to put your best foot forward. But after the, f- and we, and I remember Lily just saying, okay, nobody ever sells anything on their first time. And we did. <laughs> so that was, you know, it's like, well, the good news is you sold something. The bad news is you're going to wait six years and it'll be. 80% different from <laughs> what you sold. Yeah. But your name is, and now your name is one of six names. You know, you're you're a third of the pie, not the whole pie. But um, but I, I had gone through that enough to where we went in and pitched some things to DS9. And one of the ideas Janet had was a, a Jake and Nog are working on a science experiment. And it basically got back to Jake doesn't realize it, but he has some latent PSP, PTSD guilt about his mom's death. Mm-hmm. And that as a little kid, sometimes when we're little kids, and they use this in plots at times. You would see it. In fact, I think a Hero Worship on TNG, but we, we didn't look at that. But um, when Jake, like, 
goes back at times and says, well, if I hadn't been standing where I was, or I, my mom told me to do something, like Jennifer told me to do something, my mom told me to do something, and I didn't, and if I had done it, then she wouldn't be standing where she was when the beam fell on her and trapped right. her in the, you know. But you're like, you blame yourself for something that is ridiculous as a kid. Right. Yeah. But he he didn't, and then he and, he and Nog are doing a science experiment, and something wacky happens, and at the same time, Cisco disappears from DS9 for a completely unrelated reason, but... Jake is like hell bent on blaming himself because he figures out the time. And anyway, he's like he's blaming himself for his dad's disappearance. And she pitched that. And then the whole thing was like teching it and having Cisco, you know, pop in and having everybody else support Jake and Jake blaming himself and this whole thing. Uh, and it comes back out about his mother. You know, he's blaming himself for his mother and he hadn't thought about it. So anyway, I just remember they did it and we didn't hear it. They didn't take it. And then I remember she came home and said, well, Renee came by and said, hey, I think you're going to enjoy tonight's show. And it was it was the visitor. And the whole thing was Jake feeling guilty about his dad her <laughs> disappearance. Right. And, you know, she was like, oh, well, okay. Well, that was much. But the one I'm really up about was the one I said, I looked at Ron across his desk and I said, hey, did you ever wonder whatever happened to Ron's wife and Nog's mother? And I swear to God, I'll never forget. Ron said... He looked at me just like slack-jawed. I could tell I had him. I got him. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he goes, and he said, I, I, I just assumed she was dead. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I wanted to go, well, that's a hell of a creative angle to take, isn't it? <laughs> like, oh, well, she's dead. So I pitched this whole thing about, about uh, Moogie trying, before the Reformation, Moogie's trying to, there's a, basically a ship is in distress, has to come to DS9. They didn't want to, but they had to. And Moogie's on screen. And it turns out that she's shepherding a whole bunch of Ferengi women off Ferenginar mm. to protect them, to, who are all promising bright women who deserve to not be, you know, dumped on back home. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's one of the women on board is, is, Nog's, is Nog's mom and Rom's ex or whatever it was. And, you know, it's not like... Uh, Rom is a power of Fringy Macho. <laughs> so it was, you know, like, why did they separate and was it more her than him? And, you know, and anyway, so it was the whole thing of her coming back and at the same time, Moogie is trying to be diplomat and, you know, and Ferenginar is demanding them come back and I forget where it was with her. Anyway, that was the plot. But we we basically said, oh, look, didn't you ever wonder who was, what happened to Nog's mother and, you know, and whether she was married to Nog, you know, whatever that looked like. And then why they're breaking away now and this whole notion of a bunch of Ferengi feminists who are trying mm-hmm. to do something. So they didn't take it, um, even though I thought, I knew Ron was excited by it. And it turned, then so a few weeks later go by and it's like, oh, look, the original B story of, and I've gone blank on the episode, but it's the one where Worf goes back to get uh, Jadzia. They're on a mission, secret mission. Mm. And he okay. should have left her behind to die, but he didn't, he went back to get her and they almost get ca- captured. And he's like, I'm sorry, I'll, you know, and Cisco finally says, I won't ever send you on the same mission together like that. Uh, the B story of that was going to be, they gave her a name earlier, this episode before, Quark actually says her name, Prinadella. They gave her a name, mm-hmm. and they were going to have her be the B story uh, with, of course, with Lita involved too. Hmm. And uh, it got cut for time because the Worf and Dax story just exploded and took mm-hmm. up the whole hour. Bummer. So on yeah. one hand, yeah. Anyway, I was like, really? Really? I planted the whole idea and, you know, anyway. It's, I mean, that's a really fun idea, though. It's, uh, it's yeah. when I look at like, like something like the Orville today, which is, is it seems like every episode they're, uh, 
with uh, got him uh, Bordis with with Bordis. Every Bordis centric episode is always about basically women's rights and the race that doesn't have women. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the the fact that for the Ferengi only really have one or two episodes in all of Deep Space Nine that really go for that, despite the fact that it's right there as as you're yeah. talking about. It's just like it's right there staring you in the face, <laughs> and yet uh, they and then they, they finally do get to it. it. They finally have her schmooze up. You know, yeah. Zach like very, very into the. Isn't it in season seven? I think it's it's pretty late. Yeah. Anyway, that point. I mean, you have yeah. the early Pell where she's disguised as a man. She's going as a right. You know, um, and you and you make the case of well, look, she's just as smart and smarter than and and more uh, savvy. She's got the lobes more than almost any other <laughs> guy, and she's she's only a woman and has yeah. to hide it and then gets found out. But anyway, that has nothing to do with the Klingons and the Delta Quadrant. But um, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, it, so that, it, but after that, after those two times, we were like, yeah, I mean, I got busy with other things and the shows were running down by then. And, you know, I always did want to pitch a Tellarite show to Enterprise, but we just didn't get the chance to. Yeah. Uh, was, well, yeah. That's... Have you thought about writing any fiction yourself, like any Trek novels or anything like that? Oh, Lisa, you know, I when I was a kid, I read and I read and I read and I read and I got to junior high and I just quit reading. And I just mm. I just went it's like I went I don't know if I should blame I was in the 7th grade and I read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich or <laughs> <laughs> or if there was something else but I just I just became this uh, big history. I would read books but all like nonfiction histories and geographies mm. and and you know, stuff books and not so much, not so much fiction. And I, the, you know, when I got into sci-fi lit circles, I f- kind of felt like an imposter a little bit. I didn't make mm. a big deal out of it, but I just, it was like sitting down to read a novel and read novels was like so time consumingly something for me because I was doing something else all the time. Mm. And I, I mean, I have over the years sat down and read actual fiction, but um but it just never, you know, and to write, it kills me because I used to write, I, when I was in junior high, I wrote plays yeah. in, in grade school even. And I just, after that period, I just, it's like it, I don't know. But we had fun working on these these pitches together. Yeah. But it was definitely, Janet was the script, was the scripter of the two of us. Mm-hmm. I would, I, I could read something maybe and give notes on it, but it was just... Because otherwise, I would I would have been doing it all these years and knowing you know knowing as many of the authors and publishing people and contacts as I do, I would have I've enjoyed the nonfiction that I've done. Yeah, I'm sure. But um, I just never had the the burning, yeah, <laughs> the yeah. burn to put a story down and like flesh it all out the way all all the guys and gals do now have done for years and years and do it so well. Well, you know, some say time is the fire which burns. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, who said that? I, I, don't, I don't know. Some, some, some guy. Very prolific. Some alien prolific. guy, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I, I, we, you know, prophecies, whenever I talk about prophecy, it's this fun thing, like, here's the whole episode going by, and how much have I talked about it? Uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's totally understandable. Uh, but it is a good... The, thing, the other thing I do remember about it is, and it's an old, it's an old custom, and Lisa probably remembers, like, since the early days, if you were a new writer or a third party, you know, or a freelancer, and they actually bought your script, and no matter how much you wound up with it, um, if, you were, if it was halfway doable... If you were in town, or even if you weren't and you got yourself to L.A., 
mm-hmm. they would usually invite you in to, to watch some of it be filmed, you know, yes. and have a piece of your show. So we were right there, and I was, you know, Janet was no longer, she worked five years, and so this was the seventh season. But um, but I was still on the lot working at StarTrek.com and in licensing. And uh, so we had one day, and the day that we went over to watch was the day of um, Paris's Batleth fight. Oh, yeah? Which we're still coming up to. So they were shooting that, and almost everybody was there at the cast. And mm-hmm. I have a so I have a script and a call sheet for the day signed by everybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, souvenirs. Um, and they still had the reason it's so vivid to me, the, the, the old Klingon bridge, which they shot on, but then didn't use in the episode, uh, was over. And we went over and took some pictures. Yeah. And uh, there's a goofy story where a friend, Jeff Mandel, who works on, worked in the art department and uh, had been around for a long time. And I had worked with on a couple of things years earlier. Uh, oh, this whole thing with Neelix and Kim <laughs> and the Klingon. This is, may have been the best part of the whole. <laughs> it's, it's I was surprised they came up with it and went there and had that much fun with it. It was like, well, yeah, this is... Ever since that scene with Riker and the Klingon-ness in um, was a Matter of Honor back in Next Gen, yeah, yeah. early. Um, but anyway, but we, get to, we got to watch this. We went over to the... Uh, bri- oh, so Jeff had done... And how many years have they been showing Klingon bridges? He said, you know what? I decided we needed... We needed a Klingon dedication plaque like the Starfleet bridges have a Klingon dedication plaque. <laughs> so he had done it, but it had to be Klingon. So it was like this triangle, and he had it was all in Klingon font and all that. And so after, well, before they shot it, he said, okay, I want you to know that this is all in Klingon, and we don't know the name of the ship, blah, blah, blah. It's not in the script, the Klingon, you know, the cruiser. And then it's blown up, so self-destructed. So he says, but on this, in there's no correlation between Klingon letters and alpha, you know, English standard. He said, but on my keyboard, when I had the Klingon font in, I typed in the IKV, you know, Imperial Klingon vessel. I uh-huh. typed in IKV Nemechek for the name of the ship. <laughs> nice. And this is the Klingon it came out in. I was like, oh, well, that's cool. That's a funny story. Ha ha. Okay, so we, we have a picture of us standing around the, the plaque and all that. Yeah. So, hey, okay, first of all, so the bridge is nowhere in the episode now, so right. it's, not, it's not canon. But he came over after, as they were wrapping up the show, he said, okay, well, uh, I got some bad news. I went over to get your plaque off the wall, and somebody had already taken it. Oh. And I was no. like, oh, oh, no, no. And he said, which is why I always make a backup for when <laughs> things go wrong. <laughs> so we have the backup. You know, the, oh, the yeah. plaque that was not on the wall that was later deleted, we have it. Oh, wow. Sounds great. That's really cool. And we've, we're past the uh, sick bay scene where they're talking about the virus, right? Uh, yeah, I believe we are. Or no, okay. no, no, that's coming up because no, he, oh, he, colla- okay. he collapses here. And then well, for the guy that didn't write three-fourths of this script, I have all these stories from it. But <laughs> I, have one, I have one more good story when we get to the... Uh, but it is funny to your point that like we are coming up on the thirty-minute mark of the episode, and we still haven't, you know, revealed the virus, which is the, the kind of the the key solution to the whole thing. Which I think is a we- that's the biggest weakness of having to cut that early scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now it seems like it re- it's, it really is a MacGuffin. It, yeah, comes out of it, nowhere. It, it does kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah. And it's, uh, but we watched. We this was the day, the day they filmed all this was the yeah. day uh, mm-hmm. we were watching. You know, I just, I always love the Batleths. I, I know some people yeah. give them shit because they're just like, how does this really work? But I'm just like, I don't <laughs> care, man. Just, they're great. Just, 
it was so funny, Larry. I'm sure you went to the the Skirball Center and Museum Center where they had mm. a lot of these uh, displayed, and I got to see a Batleth for the first time, and and it definitely doesn't look sharp, unfortunately. No, no. <laughs> but uh, that's TV logic for you. They can't. You were probably looking shots. at one that. I mean, people have made those out of metal and. Oh yeah, no, for sure. Oh for sure. sure. I mean, yeah. but but the actual like screen props were uh, uh, not not quite yeah. as sharp. As we yeah. would rubber hope. ones, and, uh, fortunately for the actors, yeah. I, I guess, Lisa. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares about the actors, guys? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me guess, Lisa. You're a shipper. I'm a shipper. Yeah, a shipper, <laughs> and not like a canonista. You care more about the people <laughs> and the feelings than you do about the cool stuff. Oh, here we go. <laughs> I'll, so I'll that's up. Yes, I'm a shipper. So that that scan just then, mm-hmm. that's actually uh, a seed pod. <laughs> what is that? A maple gum? Oh yeah, yeah. So Mike told Mike Okuda told me that when they did that little bit of a scan, they needed some virus. It's after going through COVID and all the graphics of the COVID virus. It, this seems like old hat now, but back back then, in the simple quick quick and dirty, cheap way that Star Trek got by on for so many years, thankfully. He just got one of those, 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 those uh, you know, spiny-looking um, sweet gum maple tree, whatever they are, that fall down on the ground around here in a lot of the country, and right. just put it on, put it, made, a comp, made a Xerox copy of it, and then they just made different copies and had several of them and made Xerox copies, and then he animated the, the, the stills to where they looked, they were viruses. You know, he colored them green and all that. Mm-hmm. So then, what he did was after the show was over, he came up to me and he gave me one of the uh, he gave me one oh, of wow. the, <laughs> that he had used and said, "Here you go." And I said, "Oh no, I need a warning label on that." So he made me a he made me a warning <laughs> label, like an acutogram capsule. Oh boy, that's amazing! One of those things. I wish uh, 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 listeners out there. I wish we were a video podcast because Larry is holding up that actual. Uh, <laughs> I've had it all dusty and everything. Yes, but, I love uh, that. That's so great. Uh, yeah, it's uh, and then I, you know, it, leave it to me to say, hey, I need an acutogram button on that. So the thing says uh, retrovirus type forty-seven B. Of course. Biohazard danger class five isolation and decontamination protocols must be observed when handling this specimen. <laughs> Wash hands before returning to work. <laughs> That's the, you know. Amazing. No Gilligan's Island theme, but it's the appropriate acutogramism uh, no. there for the end of the tablet. But. I just yes. love, love uh, Brandon Braga's obsession with the number 47 in there, too. That's, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Which, a- actually, he got that from Joe Minoski. Really? Yeah. Okay, yeah. From, I've heard so many a, versions of that story, too. It's, it's, just, a, it's Well, it's, it's an Occidental College uh, story from over in uh, Pomona. Huh. It's a thing huh. to their campus, and Joe Minoski just brought it to Star Trek. So, huh. wow. okay. interesting. And then it then it spread like <laughs> then it went viral. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, boy. So yeah, you you're three fourths or two thirds of the way in the story, and suddenly the virus is the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Although I think that they probably invented it as a as a way to solve the the Paris versus Klingon battle, because Paris would mm-hmm. lose. I mean, he just would. <laughs> yeah. And so to try and find a way for him to win, they would they would have to do something to the Klingon. And so I, I'm, I'm guessing that's where the whole virus idea came from. Well, and you also, you needed a, a way for the baby to to 
be, be the solution to the problem, right? It's, it's right. not enough just for the baby to be kind of mm-hmm. this Jesus figure for these people. They, the baby has <laughs> to do something, right? And so to have it be here at the end, I mean, we're not there yet, but at the end, it's basically the doctor finds the, it's the classic, you know, the, the baby has an immunity thing to this virus right. and we can synthesize a vaccine because of the stem cells in the, in the kid. And, right. Um, I wanted to bring it up later, but like I think I, I don't quote me on this, listeners. But I think this was one of the first instances in Star Trek where they mentioned stem cells. Um, really, I think that was still kind of cutting yeah, edge science even at the time. Mm-hmm. I my mind flashed over to when Spot had been a male and suddenly became a female because Brandon wanted kittens because they were going right. to take the T cell <laughs> from the kittens to fix. Some, I don't know. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So that was uh, in general. So Spot had to have right, kittens yeah. in the future to yeah, yeah something. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Rin T. Brown plays the role of a Korloth, Kor- Korloth here, um, mm-hmm. the kind of leader, Klingon. Really cool performance. I mean, he, he mm-hmm. kind of subverts the usual, just like snarling Klingon warrior uh, visage, but uh, I like him a lot. I, uh, he's, he's kind of a consummate character actor throughout Hollywood. I, he was in uh, Hellraiser Bloodlines, which is also known as Hellraiser 4. He was also in uh, Under Siege 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, Played another character in Star Trek in The Next Generation. This is kind of a red shirt, but here he plays a pretty memorable Klingon. And still working. Um, he's been uh, the narrator for a, a podcast that I really love called uh, Bronzeville, which is a really cool uh, 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 narrative uh, full cast podcast um, written by Josh Olson, which is, is very fun. Yeah. But he's just got that cool voice. I just, I like, I like his voice. <laughs> Sounds very wise. Yes, he sounds very authoritative, which is important in a Klingon. Yeah, I'm just looking. Sherman Howard, who plays uh, Tegreth in this, had been the lead to Marion in Suddenly Human. Huh. Yeah. But he was, you know, in quasi-human guise, and he gets to be a Klingon here. I suppose they must have had a, a short list of people who were like, yes, these guys are good with prosthetics. And <laughs> let's yeah. bring them back. <laughs> yeah. And also you can because they're going to be totally unrecognizable. Exactly, yeah. This is one of those times, I mean, Larry, I'm sure you did this too as a, as a kid, but like I always used to just imagine the Klingons taking over the ship and with my mm-hmm. action figures or whatever. And uh, <laughs> It's cool to see it here, but it's uh, if anything, I, I think they're kind of defeated a little too easily. As we're about to see here, as they well, uh, there's only like a dozen of them. I know, but (laughs) (laughs) they're supposed to be 204. Well, true. (laughs) If all of them had ganged up on us, then yeah, that would have been a problem. Yeah, 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 that's the that's uh, the downside. That and also like if they had the Delta Flyer and Neelix's ship, and then they like they have Alice. Or Christine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. If they have Alice and the Delta Flyer, and they had Baxial, which I think was, my gosh, I pulled that one out of my back. Um, <laughs> and then they have one or two just regular shuttles, and they have like this tiny, tiny shuttle bay. It's like where right. yeah. are they all? That's very, very. So fair. if they can yeah. cram that many shuttles on a shuttle bay, they can, they can put two hundred Klingons that <laughs> translate into eight extras in speaking line. <laughs> mostly just weirded out that like the the crew is very good about finding cover whereas these Klingons are just like standing in the middle and are just yeah. like yeah we're, we're good we're gonna take they these are, guys out they are Klingons we do not hide <laughs> and, and we usually fight exactly like <laughs> sure we can we can put it down to that 
It's nice to see Janeway getting in on the action too. That oh, she yeah. gets to no, shoot some. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Without without the need of flying uh, viruses, she gets to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no mercy killings on my bridge. <laughs> in sick bay, though, that's no. Never mind. <laughs> that's a whole different whole different story. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now I'm trying to remember what they. And it's like, oh, by the way, we we cured your thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's an interesting uh, tag to this episode. They leave the Klingons on a on a planet to call on, you know, in, in a way, a little like space seed, right? It's that notion of like, uh, I wonder what would have happened to them in in two hundred or three hundred years. So. It will yeah. be interesting, Captain, to return and find yes. out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I love they, this. Maybe bit they'll, too. they'll find it on uh, lower decks or Prodigy. <laughs> that would be fun. I mean, pro- <laughs> Prodigy, especially they're going right through there, but. I yeah. do love I this mean, though, it, where the the doctor is uh, all for taking credit for it, and then yep. the Captain's like, "No, you need. To, it's about the kid. Make it. About the, it's not about you." Yeah. Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> she truly is all savior. Um, uh, it it's kind of they leave on a planet. And of course, they never got back to it. Just like you know, they're they're carrying a little Borg baby around that came in with the with the drone right. with Egypt and the kids. Mm-hmm. That they never get back to what happened to the Borg baby, but. Um, they drop them on this planet. That's kind of the idea. We we didn't mean them. We meant as you get back, as you fly home, you will be retracing steps and finding other Klingon, you know, permutations, right, right, right. Mm-hmm. and different situ- different plot <laughs> potentials as you right. go back home. Which, but here they're doing it. But it's just the one they're they're leaving them behind. Yeah, yeah. It's something you get a bit in the original series, but. It feels like by the time of the next generation, it's like the the borders of empires are very like kind of rounded, and they're all very like uniformed. And uh, as as you can see by many uh, galaxy maps or whatever, but it's mm-hmm. like there's something in the original series or even in like Earth history where it's like, yeah, you could just send an expedition out, and it, they're just going to go as far as they go, and maybe they'll come back, maybe they won't. But yeah, uh, something we kind of we kind of lose a bit as uh, time goes on. Yeah, this was a funny. Tagged. Yeah, Lisa, you you rewatched Voyager recently. Wasn't there some thing where like Neelix becomes a Klingon for a bit, and then he kind of likes to uh, gain yes, a bit he, of like Klingon knowledge or something like that? Uh, yes, um, there was. I'm trying to remember what the premise was, yeah. but um, yeah, he he basically joined up with the Klingons. Um, there's some, board, weird, uh, there's some gimmick here throughout this episode where he's like he's he's trying to pretend like he knows what's happening, right? <laughs> so right. He's like, yes, I'm totally the more competent one to be to be you know in a relationship with this Klingon woman. Yes. Harry Kim, go away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there wasn't he a Klingon in the Hollow Program in the Killing Game? Yeah. I know Janeway yeah. was. I'm yeah. trying to think. Yeah, I, just, I but, thought. I mean, her, that was like maybe I'm physical. mixing this up with Buffy and how like Xander kept that <laughs> personality for you know. I've, the rest I've of heard the some stream crossing before, Peter. Yes. But <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> that would but, be intriguing. Somehow that. that oh, this is adorable. Out. Those were Hallmark ornaments. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah spray painted uh, Hallmark ornaments. Amazing. <laughs> Well, Mark, of course, was not paid for that. But. <laughs> oh, no, they were sitting in licensing, you know, samples, and they went over just like the DS9, some of the DS9 Kitbash army, and some of the gold ships on 
first contact were just stuff that was sitting in right. there. Right. Yeah. yeah. Don't spend a nickel on this show. <laughs> tight, <laughs> tight, tight budget. Well, if you can get free stuff. Oh, yeah. But go beg, borrow, and it's, hey, it's the company. If it's in the company somewhere, even if it's the licensing arm or something. Um, yeah. So, Larry, at this point, I mean, this was, what, 99, 2000, something like that? You were saying you were working on uh, StarTrek.com at this point? Like, what was, what was your life like when this show was on the air? Oh, well, at the, it, you know, it didn't air until seventh season, 2001. Right, right. Mm-hmm. 2001, right, right, right. Yeah, but, I mean, at the big, and there's the flyaway. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Ken actually was down as the, as the EP the last year. They didn't just, they didn't just make him do the job and keep Brandon on the titles. No. Uh, yeah. Of course, Rob Doherty yeah. went on to do, um, which of the Sherlock shows? Elementary. Elementary, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, some more, some more Star Trek, um, alumni. Yeah, no, Star Trek is, is really great, like grad school, you know, for so many writers that went on to do other things. Um, yeah. And so anyway, that's, you know, one of the things that I've always animated what I do is trying to get a lot of these folks, uh, there was just name there, um, mm-hmm. in the art department, get a lot of these folks and their stories and their insights and, uh, what they do, what they do what their job niche is and what their role is in the overall production. And, and I, you know, I say we always love the actors and we love their charisma and their stories, but that's such a, they're the icing on the cake, mm-hmm. you know, in a way. And for some people, they're not in the icing on the cake. Some people are going to geek out on that Klingon, um, that Takinga, Takinga, uh, Katinga, excuse me, <laughs> battle cruiser, or, was fun to you see. know, checking mm-hmm. out the, the acutograms for in jokes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, or looking at the Batleth, or what's different about their Klingons uniforms and the ones they've used before. So, um, but you know, it's all Star Trek's all different things to all different people. And um, in the in before the internet and before we had instant digital everything, it was it was a bigger challenge. It was like I just felt like nobody was telling all their stories and getting all of their insight out. But that's mm-hmm. what you know. I was a canon kid, and I love filling gaps. But when I did the companion, that kind of that was a big shift to uh, just trying to preserve what all goes in and what what was going to go in and didn't. And in the case of our story, there was a lot that was, you know, but it's, I tell all that stuff about pitching and, I, and Lisa would know this, there's, even on staff it happens, but for freelancers who come in and pitch and then they're lucky enough to have a story sold and then it may, it may go through all kinds of permutations or maybe they get to sell a story and they never get to touch the story after that and somebody else works on a script Mm-hmm. Or maybe they do for a moment and, you know, they don't at first and then maybe they sell again and that time they get... But there's every episode of Star Trek has the story that's on screen, but every episode of Star Trek has its own saga behind how it got to screen. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I know it's particularly fun to find all those un, un, untraveled routes, I guess, about Star Trek. Because mm-hmm. as, as, as you know very well, it's like, you know, you love this franchise. It, it flows through your blood very, very... You know, profoundly, and then to to find new information or or to imagine the un, unseen worlds out there, it's very tantalizing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. uh, it's very exciting to have imagined what could have been if uh, things had gone a little differently. Yeah. The road's not taken. So yes. no. So you know, in the end, um, it was too bad our show didn't get done. But it was it was of its time. It needed to be. It was an er, you know, pure, you know, as a pure thing. It was early on. Now. Right. 
some of the crazy things we we went through two or three change over the time when they said, well, redo this or rework it or do this now or go back to the original. We had, I think the original title was Reflections because hmm. I don't know that whole thing about the duality of the Klingon human, which was kind of at the heart of it. You know, belong, the the bigger picture was what happened with the Klingon crew and the shock of finding them and all that. But right. Bolana was still the pivot point. So it, I feel like it always had a really good anchor. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to do, oh look, we found Klingons in the Delta Quadrant. Who? What's going to be your anchor? It's got to be Balana. Of course. And what's you know? You amplify the inherent conflict that's exploitable in her. Boy, I sound like I know what the hell I'm talking about. Writing <laughs> lies here. That, that's that's what we're all you about know. here and on this podcast. But, <laughs> but it is a shame that like in your initial concept, it, it did uh, touch on the Balana uh, Chakotay romance, which you'd mentioned earlier. And it's like that is something that's set up in the early seasons, but then it, it, they kind of just drop it after a point. Yeah. And I think well, it's even, like that one. I always knew it would be Paris or her. If if they wanted to give her anybody, it would be Paris or Chakotay. Which one it, right. would it be? Mm-hmm. And it had to be somebody who had muck, you know. And and it really I. I was leaning toward Paris, but there was the one, I think it was just the one mentioned in in, in Cathexas, I think. Yeah, there, yeah just her, her imaginings, yeah. There, the, yeah, mm-hmm. there's the dream, which is like nail on the head, but then I think there's a few <laughs> other like kind of kind of smaller moments uh, kind of layered into the, some of the early seasons. Because I just remember rewatching Voyager, uh, you know, during the pandemic and, and thinking like, oh, I completely forgot about this. And yet it, it yeah. is kind of like peppered mm-hmm. in there throughout as if it would be something to build upon, but then you get to even season four, and, and it's like they barely know each other. You know, it's just, uh, <laughs> it's a very separate people at that point. So it's, yeah. Uh, so it just would have been really interesting to have that be a, to be a, a front and center storyline in, in, in your initial episode. Yeah. Well, like I said, Janet, the, the climax of the show was supposed to be Belana choosing who she was. She had to kill somebody. Right. Or she had to go, you know, kill, stun, whatever, put away somebody. And just to heighten the stakes of Voyager. And because, it was such a. I remember thinking, seeing the pilot at the screening, and thinking, "This is the best pilot ever." And then UPM made them go vanilla on so much. Yeah, right. Right. They, yeah, they gave, did. set all the maquis up, and then they had to back off of it so much. And that's what was disheartening to. I know that's what depressed. Every day she'd come home from work, and Jen was like, "Well, here's what they've done. <laughs> here's what they've done today. They watered this down. They watered yeah. that down." And that's why it's. I don't know about you, Lisa, but it's really hard for me to. I mean. I, I should have intellectually known it at the time, but Voyager has become such a big, you know, the Janeway army, I say. It's such yeah. a it's such a feminist statement from Star Trek. And not just Janeway, but even Bolana and Seven. Yeah. I absolutely. mean, up and down the line. And mm-hmm. and I would never stand in the way of what that means to young women and little girls and what that's meant over the much less anybody who any who enjoyed any part of Voyager. But I just remember in the day always feeling like Voyager was the 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 unfulfilled promise because it got yeah. squashed early on. Now, now you were there and everybody was still, you know, let's make the show better, better, better every year. But um, yeah, no, I just I, remember I, watching from a near adjacent, like front row, and going, mm-hmm. eh, and then cheering for it, but then going, <laughs> eh. <laughs> <laughs> every once in a while, in the writers' room, somebody would bring up, you know, the like you mentioned, the unfulfilled promise of, you know, the, the conflict that got dropped so quickly. Um, and I know that there was a lot of talk about sort of making use of the situation, you know, that we were supposed to be more like desperate for, for supplies and like, you know, the ship was getting broken down as we went and we had to trade and we had to, you know, deal with lots of aliens to try and just keep the ship together. 
And I I do think that was a shame that they did not use that that potential um, and that it did eventually become essentially like the next generation. Yeah. And if it had been 10 years later, they could, I mean, I remember people laughing about how the ship was so pristine. Mm -hmm. And if they're really ragtag, and they're desperate for things, or they are in these space battles. Who who repairs? Why is the ship so? And it's like, well, because <laughs> yeah. they're not going to touch a twenty thousand dollar model, yeah, you know, and, or put labor on it. That was the real world reason. Now CGI, that's all moot. And you, even sure. inter, even Archer's Enterprise would come in. You know, just the difference that five, six, eight years made. It could be banged up from week to week and show yeah. it, and nobody cared because it was a digital model anyway. Yeah. But those are the kind of things that impact. You know, and you go, and and the writers are sitting there going, "Yes, it's a ragtag ship that's under duress," and, and everybody <laughs> watching at home. By the time visual effects is done with, it's like, "No, it's not. It looks it's fine. perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah." And they have an endless number of shuttlecraft to send out and get crashed on planets. Yes. Well, I remember the day Janet came home and said, "I can't believe they did this." I'm like, "What?" She said, "Well, in this episode, they say we've got fo- 27 or 37. I forget." Photons, probably photon torpedoes, and she goes, "What? We have seven years to go, and we're going to start numbering the photon torpedoes now." And <laughs> you know, it was it was like the that's the forgotten thing when everybody focused on how the shuttles keep. You know, that's some shuttle replicator you've got. Yeah, which is funny because on Prodigy now they have a shuttle replicator. They have a shuttle like, 3D printer. Oh, yeah. See, <laughs> it well, wasn't so far for one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's I, much I, easier in animation than it is in. Yeah, that's life. true. I did. I did actually quite like that fight scene, though. When they first introduced that, I was like, "Oh, this mm-hmm. is, this is a clever way to use this. This is this is this is fun." But who uh, knew? A, who knew a uh, animated fight scene could be so tense? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah. Anyway, uh, so Larry, I mean, what's uh, what's life been treating you to lately? Like, what are you working on these days? Well, it's kind of funny. I, I I took this backstage, you know, tell their tales and stories. That's where Portal 47 came from, which is this business I've had the last uh, seven years now, um, which is a monthly package every month. I invite everybody to go over and check it out at portal47.net. But it's a combination of things out of my archives and roundtable and me just kind of being there to advise and guise people. But also... Uh, we have a guest every month that is from some era. We've had original series people, actually, but uh, some era of Star Trek who work behind the scenes in some form or another and some things that are even surprising. But the goal there is to just have a deeper dive than what you are gonna, what you know on the surface or what's out there that's easy to get to and, and to represent all the different fields and crafts and, and creative angles. Even security guards. Uh, Steve D'Errico is an amazing <laughs> security guard during Voyager and Enterprise who has a billion stories and it's he's just it, there it's a it's a hoot but it's also insightful and gives you you know all a taste of what the stage life was like or the offices or the post people and that's mm-hmm. that's what I, and then the thing that's really been surprising is this idea that we did a big uh, locations tour 10 years ago and now and we still do that geek nation tours has me do that but um I do day tours now around LA. So if people want to have a a real life away mission, and everybody knows Vasquez Rocks, you know, or sure. the Tillman Water Plant that was Starfleet for so much of the of the Burman era, but there's a lot of places. And thankfully, Picard shot in LA, and we have a lot of new places now. But uh, not just the winery that's two and two almost two and a half hours out of LA. You mean you mean it's not in France? It's it looks look so much no, like France. It's not Le <laughs> I know, I know. France in a drought. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
but that's been, you know, so people come to LA and they, they have an extra day in their vacation or their business trip. And, and we set up and, and ahead of time and do a, I call those Trekland treks, but it's basically, I figure if you can take a tour of, you know, celebrity suicide mansions or yeah. something that tar, Star Trek people deserve, uh, you know, and people bring their, their costumes and their cosplay or they, yeah. they have their little action figures or whatever it is they take pictures with and, and uh, have a lot of fun. And, you know, but they plan it. They plan it out. Mm -hmm. Then then I've got some specific ones coming up. But, um, yeah, people can go over to my site and check it all out. It's fantastic. And what's what's that website? Give us the URL. Oh, 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 LarryNimichek.com. LarryNimichek.com. Yeah. There you go. Take, take the cue. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> and, of course, the con season's coming up. And um, uh, Vegas is coming up and San Diego mm -hmm. Comic-Con and... And we get around to all of those. Oh, and I should say Trek Files is podcast, my podcast with Roddenberry. Mm -hmm. And I have my live show every Tuesday at 1 Pacific, 4 Eastern called Trekland Tuesdays Live across YouTube and Facebook. That's fantastic. And is, uh, is, has there been an update recently on the, uh, the Con of Wrath documentary? The what Con of Wrath, my editor and I got, we got away for about a year, but we were back onto it. Yeah, we're fantastic. <laughs> we're hard at it, and I know a lot of people are asking, and I'm asking. <laughs> so um, I'm asking myself all the time. But no, we just we just kind of got into a double down. We've got to get this finished and wrapped up. It's, we've got tons of people involved. You do, yeah. Uh, and it's an, uh, still an awesome story. The, the um, yeah, the craziest, uh, the uh, biggest meltdown convention that ever happened. I say the, the riches to rags to riches story of, <laughs> of, a, of a crazy event that um, and was from the golden age of Star Trek. So it's, yes. it's pretty awesome. And specifically, uh, a lot of real life people involved. So. Specifically connected to, uh, to the Wrath of Khan for listeners out there. And this is, yep. uh, uh, I know you, you had like uh, one of the final interviews, right? With uh, Harv Bennett before he passed away, wasn't it? It's, I uh, had the last on camera. It was yeah. four years before he died, but his yeah. wife said this will be his last. And he was fine. He was fine. Uh, but I know it wound up being the last time he was on camera. Hmm. That's amazing. But yeah. uh, well, I mean, I hope we can we can see it soon because that's uh, I'm looking forward to it. Me too. <laughs> um, uh, stay tuned, everybody. We'll get done. Absolutely, uh, Lisa. Do you have a short story coming out soon? Uh, well, yeah. In uh, the the new uh, issue of Star Trek Explorer, I think it comes out later this month, later in July. Uh, yeah, no, it's actually uh, the summer issue's out. I meant. Uh, oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, I got it in the mail already. So it's. Uh, oh, okay. But uh, do you have oh. it uh, 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 in the fall issue? Do you have one coming up there? Uh, yes, I do. Awesome. Uh, I don't know what it's about yet, but uh, oh, I'm going to be pitching them stories pretty soon. <laughs> those, those are the best kind of stories, right? They, yes. they, just, they just appear. They write themselves. They, they write right? themselves. <laughs> Poof. I have, I have Loki working on it right now. Ah, good, good, good. Awesome. <laughs> Put in that cap. He's, he's wanting to do notes with you. Yeah, yes. Or she. Yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, well, let's wrap it up then right there. Uh, listeners, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us at TrexpertsBR on Twitter and uh, TrexpertsBriefingRoom on Instagram, where we'll post behind-the-scenes images of Star Trek and let you know about upcoming shows. Uh, we want to thank our sound engineer, Mark Rivera, who makes us sound so great on these uh, COVID remote recording times, as well as everyone at Electric Entertainment, including uh, producer Natalie Miscali and executive producers Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Uh, so until next time, for Lisa Glink and myself, uh, thanks very much for being here. Please rate us five stars if you like the show. And the briefing room is now closed. Mr. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, bridge control started going crazy.
levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened, as if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.